Welcome to Wired for Impact. My name is Peter King and I'm the host of the podcast. In these episodes, I sit down with world-class creators, entrepreneurs, and leaders to find out their backstories, who they are, what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. The conversations are intended to enlighten, educate, and inspire you to become the best version of yourself. Collectively, we can and will make a difference. We will create impact. I'm here with Dan Hogging. Did I say that correctly? You got it, man. Thank you for saying it right. I I just found out that you have uh, Mexican heritage. Is that correct? I do. Yes. Okay. Very good. Just, yeah. As I was saying a minute ago before we started recording, uh, just another thing to add to the mix of (laughs) the interesting, uh, un, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Remarkable, uh, Dan Holguin. There's so many things about you, man. For those that don't know who you are, I I met you out in Whitefish, Montana about a year ago. And uh, you took us for a hike through the woods. And Dan has how long are your dreads now? Man, lengthwise they're they're down to almost my knee. Um, but time wise, I think it's been about nine years now. So Damn. It, a lot it, of patience required. You know, <laughs> I can imagine, man. I, it's quite the sight <laughs> to see uh, a white guy now that I know with Mexican heritage with dreads running through the woods of Montana. It's it's right right then and there is what I said you know, again, I've got to talk to this guy to have him on my podcast. So, um, <laughs> you are known as the Rasta runner, hence the dreads. Um, tell us what, how you got into that. Why, why are you the Rasta runner? Who is so Dan? It, it, it's interesting. Cause the, the Rasta runner thing kind of came organically. Um, and it was a, a moniker that was given to me by a friend of mine, Brandon Horaho, who, uh, is, been my buddy for years, my mountain climbing buddy, uh, but he's also the guy who owns Montana Knife Company here in Montana. And uh, we were climbing a mountain one day, and I was talking about, um, I was talking about like getting back on Instagram and um, like trying to find uh, a, a different way of doing it. So prior to some of the things I'm doing now, um, I have like a personal account, which I think is just my name, Dan Holguin. Um, but I feel like at that time, this was about eight years ago that I was kind of like just posting just to post and it like didn't really feel good. I don't know. I was just kind of doing the thing yeah. and I was talking to Brandon and I was like, Hey man, like I really want to do something different. Like I really want to, I really want to contribute at a, at a higher level here. Uh, and, and he's like, well, why don't you just like start a new account and start fresh? I was like, all right, well, do I just, what do I call it? He's like, well, uh, what about like, uh, what about like, like running Rasta or like, uh, Rasta the runner, or what about Rasta runner? And, and it was like a light bulb in that moment. I'm like, Oh my gosh, that sounds like a really kind of like a cool name. So, uh, I went home that day after we summited and, and, uh, and started the account and found a better way of going about, um, presenting myself online and, and sharing with, you know, some of the things that I've learned throughout my life. Gotcha. Um, what led to the dreads in the first place? Well, um, you, you like, if we go back to like 2013, um, I was already growing my hair out at that time. I really wasn't doing it uh, with the, the idea of having locks at any points. I was just growing my hair out. And I kind of like came to this point where, um, you know, I kind of hit like what you would call rock bottom, um, where like I had some things that like happened in my life where I lost somebody that was extremely close to me. He was my my uh, my coach, my friend, my father figure, uh, my mentor. I mean, the, the, the man was my best friend. And um, I went to check on him one morning at his home. And 
ended up having to break into the house to to be able to to get to him. And uh, as I went downstairs to to find him in his bed, I uh, I found him dead. Hmm. And that had like really triggered a series of events that kind of just put me into that place. And the emergence of that um, about six months later is kind of like where that where the, the the locks came from at that point. You know, I was like at my lowest point and like really trying to dig my way out of the hole that I had buried myself in. And uh, instead of going back to a gym after gaining 30 pounds and, you know, kind of like losing all self-control, I ended up going to the mountains instead because mm. in my head I was rationalizing it as, you know, like I've always been the fit guy, the athlete, and I didn't want to go to the gym where I knew that I would see people I knew. I didn't want them to see me that way. So I went to the mountains and I started running. It's kind of like running. It was more like hiking and walking because I was so out of shape at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just kept going back. I went back every single day for two weeks. And the first day I remember only going like a quarter mile or something like that before I was just completely out of breath. But the next couple of days were also a quarter mile. And then I hit like a half a mile and then a mile. And then I finally summited this local mountain by my house. And about two weeks of that went by and I was really starting to like get the, the concept of being in nature again and like running and being outdoors. And for those that like maybe um, have been depressed at times or maybe just like felt like, you know, they really didn't have much to live for at, at, a, at a point. It feels like every moment of the day that you're awake, at least, uh, you just have like this bearing weight on your shoulders, like this burden. And I felt that, man. I felt that every moment that I was awake. But the time that I would spend in the mountains, like even if it was like an hour, man, it was like freedom from all of that. Mm. And it really like helped me to redefine uh, what I wanted to, to do and who I wanted to be. And so again, like two weeks went by and I thought, well, I'm starting to feel good. I'm starting to get the hang of this. What if I like brought some music into this (laughs) and kind of just like spice it up a little bit. And I've been listening to reggae music since I was in high school, you know, but I wasn't really understanding it until now. And so I brought the music in and being at like my lowest point, like if you really understand reggae music, it isn't about what most Americans think it is about getting high and smoking weed and peace and love. Like there are elements of that, but real reggae music, the, the, the reggae music that's rooted in, in the religion and the culture of it is more so about self-reliance and positivity and discipline and community. All of the things that like at that point in my life, I, I felt like I was lacking. And so the music became a mentor when I didn't have anybody else around me. So you you take like that concoction of being in nature, of getting that endorphin release, of doing something good for your health, of being in a place of struggle. And then you bring in this this, this musical mentor, which (laughs) reggae music is to me. And you just have like this, this wonderful formula of healing. And within about three to four months, I was able to, really dig myself out of that hole and kind of emerge as to, you know, uh, who I'm, who I am now. Mm, that's fascinating. I, yeah. I don't know a ton about reggae music per se, but Bob Marley to me is one of those, uh, yeah. mis, misidentified 
uh, icons just because yeah, yeah, yeah. he he comes across as yeah. you know for the average American like you said just peace uh love smoking smoking yeah. dope and feel you know good feel goodery yeah. but man dude that guy was a badass like I don't yeah. think most people realize the, the amount of yeah. stress and pressure he was under and the stuff he had to do for his country um and the state the balls that it took to have he, to stand yeah, up he, to, he had to do a lot. um what do you think it is about nature what do you think it is about about uh, you know montana and and to realign yourself like what is it about it that that helps you do that well i think i think like the the nature thing for me is uh it, it allows me to to like reconnect to what is real for me like uh i live in a place uh like montana that's that's very much behind in the rest of the world uh, in terms of like technology and such Montana is like three to five years behind. And when I go to the city, a modern city, let's call it Los Angeles, because I've spent a lot of time there. It's a very different way of life. It's very fast paced. It's very on the go. You know, everybody's moving at a speed that, you know, we weren't really meant to to move at. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like the the speed that humans were meant to move at is the speed of nature. I heard that recently and it like really spoke to me. And that's what I love about Montana is it is a little bit behind, you know, you, you look at, you look at what we would consider a first world country. That would probably be the United States, right? Cause mm-hmm. it's modern. There's technology everywhere. It's up to speed, but really like if, if you look at the definition of first world, the first world is the original world mm. before the technology, before the modernization, a place like Montana, you know, if I was to flip my, my, my screen around right now and show you outside, that's really the first world trees nature i i'm looking right here i've got a deer walking through the through the trees right now like that's the first world mm-hmm. and and for me that's what it's all about man it's it's being connected to something where we came from where we originated from mm. so how did you get from being overweight and depressed to now you're running uh ultra events you ran a spartan ultra um, sure. The, most recently, yeah. you did that. What a, a week ago? Two weeks ago? Um, what yeah, is so that? This, was a week ago. Yep. What, what What is that? Give us uh, for those that don't know. Give us uh, some details of what the Spartan Ultra is. So Spartan Ultra is um, it's actually a really cool race, and they host it right here in near my hometown. Um, the Spartan Ultra is a new type of race that Spartan Race is putting on, and it's basically a thirty to thirty five mile run through the mountains and they bring in obstacles from hanging obstacles to lifting obstacles to jumping obstacles and they kind of combine two of my favorite things to do mountain running and and swinging around ninja monkey bar stuff Uh (laughs) and so for me it's a it's a really cool experience because if you look at all of the top spartan races across the united states montana is always in the top three because of the elevation change because of the terrain just because of the, the ruggedness of it, uh, Montana's top three in it, terms of in, the top three. in terms of people difficulty. joining it or difficulty. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Difficulty for sure. Because the, the thing that about the Montana race that makes it so special and unique is that there isn't a, <laughs> it's not like a trail that you follow. You're basically just going into the wilderness and they put little strings on either side and, and make a trail and they say, okay, go. And so you're going up big, steep pitches, and then you're dropping down into these really low valleys, and then you're coming mm-hmm. up out of them again. You're basically just bushwhacking through 
like really gnarly terrain. And so that's what makes it so appealing to me is that uh, it's difficult. Mm. And I, I really appreciate being in difficult situations in the mountains. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm so drawn to it. What is it about the difficulty that you self-select into that? What do you, what do you gain from it? I feel like I'm kind of like a sentimental guy, man. Like if I, if I look back on like the majority of the things that I do, I appreciate, and I, I still have the shirt that I wore in high school when I'd work out. Um, I love songs that remind me of when I was a kid, uh, things like that. And so like being in the struggle in the mountains now reminds me of when I was in the mountains struggling to breathe when I was 30 pounds heavier. Mm. Like it just reminds me of where I started and I really appreciate that. And like, if you've been in situations where you experience like real hardship physically, when you can't breathe, when your legs are on fire, when you still have another 40, 50, 60 miles to go, it's in those moments where I've found that I'm able to like really peel back the layers of who I am and what I'm capable of. And every time I do that, man, like my ceiling or my capacity, whatever you want to call it, gets a little bit higher and a little bit higher and a little bit higher. Mm. And that's addicting. And mm. for me, like I, I want to experience that as often as I can. Mm. What, what are some of the things that you've discovered about yourself on these uh, ultra races um, or some of the other things that you've done? Like you, you were talking about the peeling back of the onion layers. Like what's, a, what's one of yeah. the big epiphanies that you've had? All right. So here's one. Um, Two months ago, three months ago now, uh, I ran a race in Arizona in, in the desert out in, uh, right outside of Phoenix. And it was a hundred mile race. And I got it done in like 27 hours or something like that. Wow. I ran 85 miles without feeling anything. And, and I'm not saying that to brag, but like my training was so good that I didn't even feel fatigue until mile 85. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I kind of feel my legs. You know, I kind of feel my legs now, which is an amazing thing. Right. But what's really interesting and a layer that I peeled back and realized was at mile 85, uh, my Achilles popped Mm. and I still had like 17 miles to go. And the thing that I realized is that like, if you take a big, let's say a hundred mile race or this big thing that you're trying to achieve, it doesn't even really matter to me. Like it doesn't even get good until it starts to hurt. Mm. Like that's when you learn the most about you. Like I don't remember anything about miles one through 85, mm. but damn, if I don't remember every step of those <laughs> last 17 miles to the finish line, you know? Mm. Yeah. And so it just makes me realize that like, I'm, a, I'm the kind of person who appreciates when things get difficult and I appreciate the process of difficult things. Nobody remembers one through 85. They only remember when it starts to get tough and then they really have to figure out how to finish the thing. They really got to figure out how to come on top. And so it just made me realize that, that I'm a process guy and, Mm. and being able to be present with the process is, I mean, it means everything to me. Um, what is that process that you go to walk us through what happened? Your, your Achilles pops, you got 17 miles to go. Uh, I'm (laughs) assuming you can barely walk. What is the mental process to get you to that finish line? So, all right. So, so full transparency, here's what happened. 
I don't, I don't drink coffee. Okay. So like at mile 84 and a half, 85, somewhere in there, uh, it's about 3 AM and, uh, I'm starting to kind of get a little tired. So at the aid station, which is like a tent in the middle of nowhere, they have like snacks and drinks and such. And so I popped like a small shot of coffee. Well, I haven't really been eating solid foods very often all day long. And so I didn't realize, but coffee goes right through you, dude. <laughs> it goes right through you. And so within 15, 20 minutes, like, yeah, exactly. Like I got to poop, but I'm in the middle of the desert. So I pull off to the side of the trail. I handle my business. And as soon as I go to like push off for my first step back into a running pace after being down in a low squat for a minute, uh, my Achilles popped. And, wow. and I think it was just because I was in that, that fixed low position, which I haven't experienced you know, for 85 miles or whatever. And so at that point, like it was kind of a scary thing because I attempted the same race, the very same race a year prior and didn't finish it. And so immediately it triggered all of that, all of those thoughts that like, oh my gosh, we're going to do this again. I'm not going to be able to finish because of this stupid thing. And my mind immediately just goes to a place of doubt and fear and, uh, you know, things like that. And so what I appreciate is being able to navigate myself out and rewire my thoughts for what happened last year was last year. Everything this year is completely different. Your training has been different. Your ways of thinking are different. Your experience has been different. So this is a completely new situation. So are you going to quit? No. Okay, well, cool. Well, let's just focus on the next mile. Let's just do one mile from here. And so that was the way that I was kind of like working it out in my head is, am I going to quit right now? No, I'm not going to quit right now. Cool. Then let's just focus on the next step. Mm. And so I think when you get into those moments where like you're, you're really struggling mentally or emotionally because of this physical pain that you're experiencing, you almost have to like shift entirely to logic. Because mm. if you can out logic emotion, you'll win every time. What, what do you mean exactly by that? What Walk us through that. So, all right. So here's a perfect example. I'm in a lot of physical pain from this Achilles thing that's going on. It's easy for me to be like, oh my gosh, my Achilles hurts. I'm never going to make it. I'm not going to finish. I'm going to have to take a, a truck back to where all of my friends are waiting for me at the finish line and tell them I couldn't do it. That's an emotional based thought mm -hmm. and situation that I'm creating. But if I can go to logic instead and be like, wait a second, hold on here. If I was to compartmentalize this pain, if there was a way for me to just set that aside, would I still continue? Yes, I would. Okay. So in that moment, I had to make that conscious, logical choice to compartmentalize pain and to continue to move forward. Mm -hmm. And so logic has always helped me in those really difficult situations. Um, it, it's easy for me to flip that logic switch when emotion starts to take over. And I think that that's a skill that a lot of us have that, that, that we could benefit from if we just practiced it more. Mm. Interesting. Do you know who Robin Benincasa is by any chance? No, uh -uh. no, she, she's, she's an endurance athlete. She does uh, adventure races. I've had her on the podcast oh, before cool. and I asked her a similar question because they go hundreds of miles as well. Um, yeah, and yeah. <clears throat> she's often the one female with three other guys. Cause it, you have to have it be co-ed. And yep. so she's, um, you know, so, sometimes lagging behind or whatever. And she at one point was struggling 
And I asked her a similar question and she talked about um, envisioning herself at the finish line. So while she okay. was in pain, while she was struggling, she fast forward herself as to what the feeling would feel like after she was on the other side of the pain. The pain was temporary oh. and she got to the other side. But the other thing that she talked about was also shrinking it down, like you were yeah. just talking about. And I've seen that pattern amongst people who are who face very difficult things is they shrink down the the objective to the next step, to the next mile, yes. to the next what have you, um, which seems to be very effective when you're struggling. Um, Most I'm definitely. Just, yeah, I'm just noting that out. Um, yeah, what's no, been so the, true. What's, uh, what's been the longest race that you've run? Uh, the longest one I did was that race in, in Arizona. Okay, that, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that was how long again, 100? 100, 100 they called it 100, but it was 102 and a half. <laughs> <laughs> that last two and, and a half is a bitch. Hey man, I'm, when you're in that much pain, that extra two and a half miles, yeah, man, that was on my watch. Like looking at it, like, all right, we're at a hundred, <laughs> but I don't see a damn finish line. <laughs> so, hundred and two is uh, hundred two and a half. Yeah. What What did it feel like to cross the finish line? I didn't feel anything, hmm. and and that's something else that that was very interesting for me because as I'm rationalizing the last seventeen miles. I'm like, gosh, I can't wait for this to be done. I just, I'm over this thing. Like, I just want to finish. Uh, when I crossed the finish line, like, you can watch the video. Like, I just have like a blank stare across my face because what I was expecting was like this feeling of joy and like completion and 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 pride. Uh, but it was entirely emotionless, which was mm. I thought was interesting for me. Um, but what? I, what I kind of like rationalized over the next few days was, you know, what I'm really proud of with that whole race is those last 17 miles, like mm -hmm. crossing the finish line didn't mean anything, but it was how I carried myself when mm -hmm. it got really freaking tough that I was most proud of in that race. Mm. I mean, I would imagine that you were just so freaking tapped emotionally, spiritually, you know, everything, uh, everything that there's yeah. probably not a lot of emotion left to be able to celebrate yeah. even <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah uh that's that's a really interesting lesson to have learned i noticed in your switching gears for a second i noticed in your um in your bio that you're a glacier park historian national glacier park historian um yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool <laughs> so that, that's one of those titles i kind of gave myself okay. um <laughs> here here's here's why i put that in there uh, I told you that earlier that Montana means a lot to me and it really does. Montana means a lot to me more. So in particular, Glacier Park, Glacier National Park is about 45 minutes from, from my place. And uh, there's so much history in Glacier National Park because uh, before it was purchased by the United States government, uh, it was, it was home to several different native tribes here in Montana, in Canada and some even in Wyoming, because those were the tribes that typically worked around chasing herds. And, and so they made their home in Glacier National Park from time to time, specifically the Blackfeet people. Mm. Now, because of that, there's so much history here. I mean, these people lived and died and were buried in these mountains. And I feel like for me, uh, for somebody who appreciates Glacier National Park for what it is and what it has been, I feel like almost called to continue to share those stories because if we don't share the stories, they die. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I feel called to, to do that. And so 
um, calling myself a historian, I, I'm still very, I still have so much to learn, but I feel like I have a, a decent working knowledge of the history and the people that lived in the mountains. What are some of the lessons that you've learned from the, the Blackfeet, but also just native culture in and of itself that you'd like to share with others? Well, I think the probably one of the biggest, and I, I have a post that I share every summer because I think it's important is to, is to walk lightly while you're here. Now, because this, again, is a place where people have called home for 10,000 years prior to you being here. And again, they, these people lived and died and made their lives in these mountains. And I think that if, if you look at like what's trendy and what's popular, it's what's, it's going to like a national park or a place like that and doing something for the internet, trying to be funny on social media with wildlife or walking too close to a ledge or, you know what I mean? Things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that like that almost discredits the, the land itself. And I find that offensive. Mm. And so I just ask people to, if they do come to Montana, if they do visit a, a national park or a place is just to walk lightly and, and be respectful of that because the people that came before you um, also did the same thing. And I feel like it's, it's part of our duty to be respectful and do the same. Mm-hmm. I, um, when I was a kid, I visited uh, my mother took us on a long epic uh, quote unquote epic <laughs> road trip uh out west and she wanted to show us all cool. you know yeah yellowstone and um that whole area so uh, we visited and saw the uh what's it called old faithful the geyser oh, and yeah, I, t- yeah. I took my kids there a couple of years ago and it was kind of sad because there's now i mean it's still beautiful it's unbelievably you should anybody that's listening should go if you haven't been but um yeah. you know there was first of all there was thousands of people there when i went there was you know, tens of people that were there there's ropes, there's lines, there's like, you know, big buildings and gift shops. I was like, Oh man, it just, it just has a different vibe to it now. And I was like, ah, it's kind of frustrating, but Montana, especially up in whitefish, when I visited up there, I was like, ah, this is what I remember. You're, you're still away from, from all the bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, you you really are, man. And, and that's what I love. I mean, you, you think about like the most remote places that are still around today, you think of Alaska and you think of Montana, or at least Mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are really like the last places that are still wild. And Glacier Park is the same way. The culture there. uh, I mean, you get a, uh, at least I did. There was a sense of when you run into a Montanian, if if that's how you would call it. Montanan. uh, (laughs) Montanan. um, There's, there's a, there's a sense of like, you better, you better walk lightly to, to, to say, yeah, it, to, to, to put, I, you feel a sense of, Hey, this is, we're protecting this space. Yeah. And, um, and it's not necessarily unwelcome, but it's kind of a check yourself before you, before you yeah. spend time yeah, yeah. here. Is it's that, stern, did you say right? that's accurate? It, it is. Stern. Accurate. That's the word I'm looking for. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It is because the people that live here, you know, we, we have, uh, we have conservative values and beliefs and some of those like old world beliefs as well. And when you have a place that's as special as Montana, you want to protect it as best as you can. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's one of the things that I try to stress to people is, yeah, when you do come here, um, be respectful, you know, 
don't be an idiot. <laughs> yeah. And, the, yeah. and there's that stern uh, response there. If you're not like it, you feel right. that energy of, right. you know, stand up straight. Hey, <laughs> I, I mean, again, shirt in. <laughs> again, it's still, it's still wild out here, you know, like, yeah. like people aren't just riding around on horses anymore. Like that still happens a lot, but I mean, we, you know, we have, we have some technology, we still have cars and everything, but at the same time, the people here, you know, they, they live a little bit different and they, um, you know, they, they give respect, but they also ask for it in return. Mm -hmm. so, What's yeah. nice about Montana is it in very, you know, in less than 10 minutes, you can be not at the top of the food chain. And that does a very <laughs> interesting thing to your psyche. Yeah. I mean, it really does. Have you had any encounter, yeah. encounters with bears or wolves or anything like that? So to, to, for, for those that don't know, like I spend all of my time in the mountains, whether I'm running in Glacier National Park or whether I'm just uh, living around the ranch. I, I live on a ranch up in the mountains as well. So I spend all my time in the mountains. Um, almost always I have bear encounters. Mm. And here's what's interesting. I've been running, I would say running now for probably nine or 10 years. And I run into bears all the time and it never gets easier. Hmm. ever it's still just as just as frightening in those first couple seconds but what's interesting is is the way that i approach the situation that's what's changed and got better and i've, I've, I've built more confidence in because i've learned more about predator logic behavior uh characteristics about their personality like body language all of these things and so when i do have an encounter and it's interesting because with bears and mountain lions, it's completely different. But with a bear, usually um, you come up on a bear really quickly, and especially at the speed that I'm moving at, the encounters initially are even quicker. Mm. Um, and so that part is always frightening. But immediately, I'll go through my steps. Okay, so what's step one? As soon as I see the, the animal, I need to make noise. I need to let them know they're there if they haven't already seen me. Cool, what's step two? I need to take out my bear spray, take off the safety. What's step three? I need to take out my, my fixed blade knife. And then I slowly start going through my other steps as I make my presence known and, you know, find the, the safest way of passage, either around the animal or just backing up and leaving the area entirely. Mm. So the, the, uh, the encounters up here are very real. And I think that like, I, I, I kind of relate this to surfing for a man or a woman who goes into the ocean to surf, you almost have to, you almost have to come to terms and be okay with the fact that this could be how you die. You could die from a shark attack if you go into the ocean, because that's just, that's where they live. Right. Well, I think it's the same in the mountains too. You have to, you have to be okay with a bear attack or a mountain lion or uh, a pack of wolves because that those are very real things here mm -hmm. um and that's one of the things that over the years that i've kind of learned to come to terms with as well is that if that's how i go then um then i'm gonna i'm gonna die trying you know mm -hmm. what i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna fight for my life and if that's how i go then that's a noble a noble way of leaving the, the world mm -hmm. um have you learned things from the native culture about connection with animals connection with nature i mean i know you have but like what what are maybe some of the things lessons sure. you learned that the average uh, nine to fiver doesn't think about or is aware of well i think that i think that the time that i've spent with the native people here 
um, one of the things that I've learned that I've really appreciated is our connection to animals is very similar to our connection with humans. Like we, I think that for most of us, we would categorize say a bear or a mountain lion as different. But to, to me, I feel like we're all the same and we're all connected to them. And what's interesting is when you start learning about the logic of a predatory animal and the logic of a human, shoot, they're very similar, man. Mm-hmm. They may operate a little bit differently, but I feel like I feel like we're all alpha predators across the board. Some are just better in certain environments than others. Mm. And so, like, for example, when I'm running, um, I know that I will never get attacked by a mountain lion from the front or from the side. A mountain lion is always going to come from behind. And so I have steps that I work through in areas where I know there's going to be mountain lions. So, for example, every 100 yards, I check my six. Because mountain lion's always going to jump on you from behind, whereas with bear, I'll check in front of me or to the sides. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when you can get a better understanding of how they think, you realize that you're you're you have more in common than you may think. Mm. Um, you've done work with horses too, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when <laughs> so when I uh, I grew up with horses, my dad was a horse trainer. My dad was in uh, my dad was a saddle bronc rider. He did rodeo for a lot of years. Um, but when I graduated high school. I was a little bit smaller than most high schoolers who were playing football at the time. And so I never got a scholarship to play football, but I loved horses. And I was also in rodeo. I was a bull rider at the time. And I got this like postcard from this, uh, this college in Colorado. And they're like, congratulations. We want to, we want to pay for your school to come down and um, to come down and rodeo for us. And Oh, by the way, you can get your degree in horse training and management if you show up. <laughs> so so Done. I don't know. What I, I didn't have anything else going, man. So I packed up my stuff and I moved to Colorado. They paid for my school and I got a degree in horse training and management. And uh, my specialty was working with two-year-old horses, colts, and huh. putting like the first official 90 days of training on them. And so basically what I would do is I would take a horse that had never been ridden, that was only halter broke. And, and for those that don't know, a halter is what goes over their head uh, or around their head, and you can attach a rope to it to lead them around. Mm-hmm. And they would come to me like that, and I would put those 90 days of training on, and by the time they left, they'd be broke to ride, for the most part. <laughs> for the most part, <laughs> gotcha. Uh, most part. I, I've I've done a little bit of, uh, very, very little, but I, I the little amount that I did was um, uh, so eye-opening for me because um, I had a woman yeah. take me through some leadership training and she called it equestrian equestrian leadership or something like that, where you stepped into the ring with that. the horse and uh, quick story. I, I jumped into the, this ring. It, well, she went into it first. Yeah. She's in the middle. And she had this little like switch thing that she could snap and the horse is on the outside is on the inside of the ring, but you know, she's in the center and, and the horse is there. And so she snaps at the horse. It starts to walk. She snaps again. It starts to trot. She snaps again. It starts to walk again. She snaps again and it stops. She's like, okay, now I want you to do it. I'm like, well, this is dumb. Like, okay. I mean, this is going to be easy. Right. So I go and I pick up the thing and I look at it and I switch it and it, it didn't even acknowledge my existence. You know? And, and I'm, in my head, I'm like, all right, well, it knows that she's the owner and she's the trainer and she's yeah. worked with it. I don't have a relationship with this horse. He's like, go fuck off, you know? And, yeah. uh, and then, so she's like, step over here for a second. So she goes, 
what's in your head? And I told her, I'm like, I don't think it knows that I, that I'm the leader. And she's like, well, but what's going on in the inside? And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And she's like, you have incongruency. Um, the reason why a lion can walk right next to a zebra and the zebra not freak out is if the lion is full and it has its inside is matching its outside. It walks around in integrity. I was like, Oh, that's so interesting. She goes, the reason why a, a, a zebra will run from a lion is because if it's hungry, it's hiding, it's, it's stealthy. It's, and that, that creates a, a signature that the zebras then fr- flee from. So she goes, your insides are not the body language. Exactly. She goes, when you tell your kids to clean your room, do you say, uh, could you clean your room? Maybe like, if it's okay with you guys, or I'm like, no, she's, and the second she said that, I was like, oh, I get it. I get it. So I go in there and I do it with the intention. And I swear to God, my, my behavior was the exact same, but my intention was different. And the horse started, I was like, whoa, that was, and that embodied feeling is a feeling that I can't, I can only point to it, but you don't know it until you step into it. You know what I'm saying? I do. That, I do. that blew me away. That blew me away with horses. Well, think horses. about, think about like, okay, if that, if that worked with an animal, how, where else could I apply that? Exactly. You know, and that, that was the point of that training was like yeah. you said, we are so similar to animals in many ways. And I mean, we are animals yeah, yeah, yeah. And that effect has the same. When you give that same like type of leadership, if you're not in, if you're incongruent, it's going to be watered down. It's not going to be effective. So how do you step into yeah. that full authentic authentic leadership? It's fascinating. Yeah. Well, during bear encounters, body language from a human's point of view uh, to to a bear is also important. So there's certain ways to stand. There's certain things that you want to do with your arms. Certain tones that you want to use with your voice um that uh that will tell a bear that you know you're not here to harm them you're just you're just passing by you don't mean any harm and you know all of that body language stuff uh, it matters and i actually give a bear and safety awareness class for people who come to my annual retreat here in montana because we do spend a lot of time in the mountains and that's what we do on day one is Mm -hmm. we talk about uh, body language we talk about the steps that are important to make in a, in an encounter with a predator. And uh, the body language is one of those things that like, we have to, we have to drill home with people because it's, it's the first thing that goes for somebody who is uh, unsure of their situation, body mm-hmm. language. Mm. Cause they're panicked. They're freaking out. They're sure. they free emotional side takes over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The emotional takes over. Uh, what type of bears are these? Are they grizzlies or are they black bears? We have both in Montana, but what makes this part of Montana that I live in the Northwest corner. So, uh, so different is that we have the largest concentration of grizzly bears uh, in the lower 48th, not just in Montana, but in the lower 48th. Oh, wow. Yep. So Alaska primarily being the only one that's bear. probably more. Correct. Yeah, correct. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, so we do have both black and grizzly, but uh, the grizzly are a little bit more aggressive than black bears. But that's not to say that black bears aren't an aggressive animal either. I think sometimes that black bears get a bad rap that they're the bears that, you know, they're kind of a pushover. Um, but really, like black bears can be just as gnarly as a grizzly. Okay. But again, it's the body language that the bear gives off that will tell you what its intention is. Mm. 
Interesting. Uh, did you see that one video of the Mon- Montanan man uh, that got attacked by a sow, uh, uh, like a mother bear? F- yeah. Uh, I think twice or maybe even three times. Three times. Three, three times. times. I did. Dude. And he's from Bozeman, which is like four hours from here. The, the thing that stood with me uh, was as he's literally, if you haven't seen it, his scalp and his i'm sorry to be graphic but his face is like falling off his arm has been chewed through he's got bones sticking out and (laughs) this dude is walking out he's he's taking he's taking a selfie video as he's like you know bleeding out and dude the thing that stood with me ever since i've seen that video is the first thing he did was he called his girlfriend and the first thing, this this to me is just pure, beautiful, masculine, feminine dynamics. Here's this guy. He's literally on his death. You know, he's probably got minutes left. The first thing he says to right. his girlfriend is, hey, babe, how are you doing? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this is a man that understands yeah. masculine, feminine dynamics. Let me check in yes. with you first. And then I need to tell you a couple of things about where I'm at, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I love Montana. I mean, I feel like people are just built different up here, man. You know, like... That, that song by Hank Williams, a country boy can survive. I feel like that song was written about a Montanan. Uh huh. Is it the, <laughs> is it the harsh winters? Is it the is it you know the wildlife? What is it about Montana? You know, I think it's a little bit of everything. I think I think that it's the winters for sure. Um, but I feel like because if you look at like the population of Montana, okay, uh, what's the population? Where do you live? What's St. Louis. St. Louis. How many people in St. Louis? I think it's about 3 million. Three it's a couple million, million. Yeah. Okay. So if it's two to 3 million where you're at in, in that city, uh, the whole state of Montana, our population just crested 1 million people for the whole state. Oh, oh wow. And I say that because um, there aren't a lot of people here, which means there's a lot of open land. And because of that, like lack of modernization, um, people have to take care of themselves. They got to be able to fix things. They got to be able to to farm. They got to be able to hunt. They got to be able to take care of their own. And I think that that's one of the reasons, probably one of the bigger reasons that, you know, Montana is just a little bit different is because you you can't just move to Montana and expect to be able to be within a few minutes of a hardware store or, or a, you know, a restaurant, because a lot of times you're not, I'm 25 minutes from a gas station, 30 minutes from a, from a grocery store and 40 minutes from a hardware store. So you got to have tools on hand. You got to know how to work with your hands. And, and I think that's one of the things that makes Montana so special. You got to have that, those real skills. The self-sufficiency is something that I think yeah. the average American has completely, I mean, we've just, we're so catered to, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, it's, it's great being catered to. And when I say catered to, I mean, like where I'm at, I'm five minutes from getting, uh, you know, chicken, beef, whatever I want. That's, you know, wrapped yeah. nicely. That's already been caught. That's, you know, fresh and all that. Yeah. But when you're an hour away from it or whatever, and you're hungry, I mean, you have to yeah. learn how to hunt. <laughs> you do. No doubt. <laughs> I even think about where I live. Like I'll be, I'll be like watching a movie or something like, man, like, I wish I could just have like someone deliver me a pizza right now. Right. <laughs> you know, like, gosh, that sounds so good. But nobody's coming out here to deliver a pizza. And by the time they did, it would be cold. You know what I mean? So like, <laughs> you, just, you gotta, you gotta know how to take care of yourself. And, and, and to me, that's special because that's, that's the real first world, you know? Yeah. 
do you think do you think there's a part of our society or our culture that's getting back to that and or maybe not by choice but uh it seems like you know there's baby food formula shortages there's food shortages going on right now self-sufficiency is kind of a hot topic right now it really is man and and i think that people are realizing and 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 here's something that i realize personally too um I, i feel like a lot of us share the same sentiment but a couple of years ago when everything kind of broke out with covid um everything was questionable. Like everything, you started to question everything. And I think that for me personally, what I realized is, you know, I don't, I don't know if my government really has my best interest at heart anymore. And I feel like, I feel like what happened uh, in the way that they handled that situation kind of proved it several times over. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, that's what really started to spark a whole new level of self-sufficiency. And I think people realize that too. Mm-hmm. That maybe we need to start doing more for ourselves. Maybe we need to start learning different skill sets because if this does happen again, I should be able to do X, Y, Z. It was one of the reasons that uh, I built a gym here on the ranch is because, uh, well, they closed the gym um, in, in the town that I, that I trained at. I wasn't able to work with my clients. Luckily I do other things that, that create revenue for me, but yeah, I wasn't able to work with my clients for a month and a half. So my revenue was stagnant in there. So now I built the gym so that if that ever does happen again, I'm prepared and my clients can come to me. Mm-hmm. So that's just an example. But I think people are getting back to that. They're wanting to start the gardens. They want to they want to build their own stuff. They want to have tools and, and supplies on hand because, mm-hmm. you know, who knows? It could happen again. Yeah, who knows? It could happen again. That's a good way of saying it. Um, I, I, Montana seemed to be one of the one of the communities um, that responded fairly quickly when that whole thing went down, and yeah. I, and and I think that's a testament to the self sufficiency and to the the sternness and the strength of the average Montanan that it was all right. Well, this sucks, but we got it and we're good. And um, yeah. you look at other parts of the country, and they're still you know under some type of uh, pressure, some type of lockdown, and. Um, it's fascinating just to see how human beings respond differently to these challenges. Yeah. Well, and, and also if you look at like the, the exodus, this like mass exodus that's been happening in the cities uh, mm-hmm. in the United States, a lot of people are tired and, and fed up with the way that it was handled. And a lot of them are moving to places like Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, places that are a little bit more rural because they just don't want to they don't want to be treated like they were any mm-hmm. longer. Mm-hmm. And so I, I understand, I get it. I'm not entirely happy with it, but I understand it. <laughs> right. So. For, for somebody who's considering a move to Montana, what advice do you have to give them to survive the winters? Oh man. You, remember we talked about going into the mountains. You kind of have to accept the fact that you could die out here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying you'll die if you come to Montana, but I will say this. The winters are long. You can expect six to eight months of winter. And so you have to be okay. It's a long time, man. It's a long time. And you have to be okay with it. Because if you don't, if you're not okay with it, if you think that like you're you're just going to come here and it's going to be quick, I think you're going to be in for a rude awakening. if, If you are coming to Montana be in to, you know, be, be all into, to learn new skill sets. Uh, survival skills are very important. 
it's not going to be as easy as it was coming from a city. You're not going to get Postmates or it's going to be a little bit tougher for you to even get an Uber. You know what I mean? So come prepared, be open to learning new skills, but also be open to learning some of the the values and the beliefs that Montanans hold because we, we, um, you know, we, we hold them dearly to us and it's easy to pick somebody out of a crowd who, um, is acting in a way that is in incongruence with the rest of Montana. Yeah. What would you yeah. say is the number one survival skill that somebody would need to learn out of the gate? Ooh, there's so many. Well, I think, I think you gotta be able to start fire because of how long the winters are here and how cold it gets. Remember we're so far North, man, that it gets, I mean, I was running, it was like negative 20. Uh, this past winter, I was out there for way longer than I should have been, but I mean, it gets in those negatives. And so starting fire is super important. You got to be able to carry and chop your own wood as well. That's super important up here. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think that a fire skill, but also just being able to, to build shelter because let's say you're, you're in the mountains, you're on a hike or something, and then a a storm comes in, you got to be able to get a fire going. You got to be able to get some shelter going. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the weather in Montana shifts on a dime because what we sometimes forget is, you know, we're, we are in the mountains. Like Montana is a mountain itself. And so the mountains and the, and the weather patterns up here change so drastically, so quickly that we've just got to have some skill sets that are just ready to go at all times. And so anytime mm-hmm. I'm out in the mountains, I just have a, a small survival kit on me with different things just in case like an emergency blanket, a fire starter. Um, I always carry a med kit on the GPS beacon, bear spray, fixed blade, things like that, because you just mm-hmm. never know, man, even mm-hmm. in the truck, I got a whole survival kit. Cause you never know. Yeah. I went to a uh, survival school with Tom Brown. I don't know if you know who that yeah. is. Um, I know. Of, I know of the name. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating guy. He, and he was, um, he grew up under the tutelage of a full-blooded Apache Native American. And so he was teaching <clears throat> all the ways of the Apache. And I, it blew my mind what, um, what A, he taught us in that short week. But he talked about the importance of a knife and how a knife, if, if you were you know, stuck in the wilderness, your chances of survivability go up by 50% simply by having a knife. Um, and not just to protect yourself, but to cut things and to, uh, attend to, um, you know, obviously to hunt, but to, you can tend to wounds. You can do a lot with a knife that you just don't normally think. So I thought yeah. that was really fascinating, but, um, I think one of the biggest lessons that I got out of this, out of that week was what he called wide angle vision. Are you familiar with that terminology that he used? No, I'm, um, I'm listening. He said that, he said that, you know, the white man goes to a mountain range and he sees the mountain top. The native goes to a mountain range and he feels the dew on his skin. He senses the eagle soaring over above. He he senses the the rustle of you know foliage to his left, um, yeah. and takes in with full sensory intake yeah. the entire mountain range. And, uh, and and then he taught us how to do it. And and it's a visceral feeling. It's not an intellectual thing. Um, in fact, he told this fascinating story of how he told the same thing to a doctor, eye doctor friend of his, and the eye doctor said, oh, let me do, let me do, let me look at your eyes while you're shifting in and out of what he would call narrow vision and wide angle vision. 
And yeah. Tom was like, okay, that's kind of cool. So he did this and he tested it and he, he goes, Oh, that's fascinating. And Tom's like, what? And he goes, nothing's happening to your eye. Your, your <laughs> eye is fixed the entire time. And that's when Tom was like, it really is wide angle mind. It's yeah. turning, it's tuning into a different frequency, um, yeah. which I think is that whole nature thing. It's the whole animal yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, it's, it's so special. It's it really so is. And we just don't learn that in our boxed in nine to five, go from here to there back in routine. You just don't have access to yeah. that anymore, especially our kids today. You don't have any yeah. kids, do you? I do. I've got a 14 year old daughter. Okay. So, you know, yeah. I do just, I, 100% I do. Yeah. Is it, is it different in Montana with a 14 year old? Is she, is she uh, looking at her devices all day or do you kick her out and make sure she gets that wilderness experience? I'm sure you do. <laughs> it's, in, it's interesting. She does both. She, she loves her phone. She loves her TikToks. Um, <clears throat> but she'll go out every hunting season and get a buck. She'll go out every fishing season and she'll, she'll pull a lake trout that she can barely hold up. You know what I mean? Like, so she hunts, yeah. she fishes, she'll go, she'll go mushroom hunting and picking and she loves all that stuff. So she's like this beautiful blend of like city and country. Um, like, uh, you know, like loves to dress up but also like loves to like smear blood on her face after, after <laughs> a kill. I mean, she's, she's both man. And, and, and I love that about her. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's I'll so have to send you some photos after we're done here, but uh, she, I mean, it, it's cool to see. It's super cool. <laughs> uh, I'd love to hear that. And I'd love to see yeah. those. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think it is about hunting that, Again, I'm trying to, I think most of my listeners are probably not living in the wilderness and, and I've had these experiences, but I, it's helpful for me to even just ask you to, to ping it off of you again, to remind me or to learn some new things about just the, the, the solemn nature of nature and the, that, that other rhythm. Um, and especially when you're hunting, like, I think there's something yeah. about hunting and the respect for this other sentient being that you, you take the life of. We talked a lot about that in my, in the Tom Brown course yeah. that I went to, what's that like for you? Or what are you teaching your daughter about hunting? So I, first off, I'm not a hunter in, in like the traditional sense. I don't, I don't go out and kill, uh, animals. Um, just not what I do. My entire family though, are all hunters. And so I'm like the, the black sheep that doesn't hunt, mm. but I will go out and I will go hike around with them while they hunt. And if I need to, I will help them pack out an animal. Um, so I'm just like the muscle behind everything I guess. <laughs> but what I, what I find interesting about hunting is that if you really have a conversation with a hunter, you'll find that it's not as like surface level as it's made out to be. It isn't like, for most hunters, um, it isn't just about like the size of the antlers. It isn't about like the size of the animal, but it's really like, it's, it's taking a life respectfully. Mm -hmm. And when you hear some of the reasoning and the philosophy behind some of these old time hunters that I talk with, you realize that like they're, they're taking this life out of respect and they're using it in every way that they can to, to feed themselves and their family. And like, I think that there's something like really special about that. Like, I don't, I don't do it personally. Um, but I, I can respect the man that wants to go out and take the life so that he can continue to live his and have that connection with nature. Because really, again, going back to that idea of the first world, that's where we started, right? Like we all started hunting and fishing and gathering, 
So I think getting back to some of those old world ways uh, is important. Mm-hmm. I do too. Yeah, it is. Um, hundred percent. Do you have still a few more minutes? I'd like to shift gears. Yeah. If, you, if you have the time. Absolutely, man. Okay, oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you are a fitness trainer. Um, yeah, you yeah. have learned a thing or two about health and, and fitness run, run your ass off. Around there. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm curious to, to get your input on, uh, on energy. Um, you are how old? 36. 36. 36 so years young, man. 36 years young. So um, what have you learned about energy? And, and for those that are struggling with energy, what advice and tips do you have for them? I'm going to give you, I'll give you two sides of it. Okay. So I'll share with you what I'm currently experiencing and then a couple of ways that I'm managing it. Okay. So my entire life, I've been, I've been the guy that like is always on the go like doesn't ever sit down. In fact, like when I was in the fourth grade, uh, my nickname for my teacher, Mr. Peterson was sit down, Daniel, because I was a kid that was just never in his seat. I was up and around talking to people, sit down, Daniel, all year long. But anyhow, I've always had a lot of energy. But what's interesting is the more that I started running, um, the more, the longer that it would take for me to recover. And I kind of like started to normalize this idea of being fatigued after a long run that would last, you know, four, five, six days when it normally didn't used to take that long. I think that like, obviously the older we get, the longer it takes for us to recover. But for those that are running the disc, like putting in those miles each week, a lot of miles each week, what I've been finding out is that all of that mileage has put like a a big stressor on my adrenal glands and my thyroid, excuse me, also my testosterone. But I kind of normalized it over the years because I figured like, well, that's just kind of how it is now, I guess. But it wasn't until last year that I had a blood panel done and my doctor's like, dude, your testosterone is non-existent. Mm. (laughs) Your, Your thyroid and adrenals are in the tank. I don't know how you, how it is that you do what you do, but but here's the situation. And it's so interesting because uh, I never thought that like my adrenals or my thyroid was going to play a role in, in all of the activity that I do, but it has. And so what's been really helpful for me nowadays is managing those hormone levels. And so I do that on a regular basis. Now I get my blood work checked every three months. And I think that anybody in their mid thirties, whether you consider yourself an athlete or not, now is the time that we got to start doing that. It might not have been as important when, when we were 20, but now at 35, I feel like there are different biological markers that we need to be paying attention to. So for mm-hmm. me, getting my blood work done on a regular basis is very important, not just for like my overall health, but to just make sure that like I'm on the right track and my energy levels are maintained. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing is that getting that blood work done is super important. But the other part of it is now I don't necessarily spend so much time focused on um, like how I can how I can have more energy through supplementation, but instead I focus more on my recovery now. As I've gotten older, my recovery methods and practices have gotten better, and they've become more specific. It isn't just like me focusing on getting good sleep and and calling that good enough. Mm-hmm. Like my recovery is uh, there, there's multiple things that I do that I feel are really helpful for me. What are the top one to three that you advise that are generally speaking uh, effective for most people? 
So I have, I have two anchors in my day. I call them anchors because um, I know that like I'm in control of how I start my day and how I finish my day. But whatever happens in the middle of the day is, isn't always in my control. Mm-hmm. But if I have anchor points that are recovery practices, then I know that I can start and end it the way that I want to. So my anchor in the morning, I always spend one hour in the hot tub. And some people might not have an hour, but that's okay. I mean, maybe maybe perhaps you start with a, a shorter amount of time. But that one hour in the hot tub every day gives me the, the recovery from my muscles, my tendons and ligaments. But it also gives me quiet clear thinking and headspace to put together my day or think about how I'm going to approach a problem or a, or a, a, something in my business or whatever it is. But that one hour in the morning, man, is so critical on, on different levels. My anchor in the evening time is two parts. It's a full body foam roll session. So I've got one of those like three foot long foam rollers. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard him called like the, the poor man's massage. <laughs> but, uh, those foam rollers, man, just do such a good job of taking a muscle and elongating that muscle and kind of working out the kinks and the knots that tend to build up with stress and tension throughout the day. Mm-hmm. So it's a way for me to decompress. But then I also go right into a full body stretching routine, flexibility specifically. And that flexibility routine that I do isn't necessarily so that I can become more flexible. But again, think about like, as you go through tasks all day long, there's a weight to each one of those tasks. And if you're not managing that weight or that stress or that emotion from task to task, by the end of the day, I mean, your body is tense. Your soul is, is like burdened. Mm-hmm. So that flexibility routine right before bed helps me to kind of alleviate that stress and that tension and uh, ultimately helps me to sleep better too. Mm. I, one of the things that I learned as I've um, gotten more experienced, as they say, uh, is that, <laughs> that mobility is a choice. Um, mm. I, I, start, I started to hit a, a bit of a, you know, a, a plateau in terms of, you know, I started to wake up and feel creaky and like, ah, I got to stretch or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And again, sort of what you were saying before is like mentally, I started to accept it. Like, oh, you just, you're getting a little bit older. And, and then I started doing hot yoga. And oh, yeah, man. The, oh, the, yeah. the, the thing that blew me away was I woke up one morning and my body tensed to like uh, take that first. And I'm exaggerating just to explain it to you, yeah, but yeah, like yeah, my yeah. body tends to take that first step because usually it's like, and I, and I didn't have the feeling. I'm like, oh, that's so fascinating that my body was anticipating but yeah, I'm not yeah. feeling the soreness, the the tightness, the whatever. In fact, I felt 10, 12 years younger. And uh, like, I was like, oh man. So every time I've started to feel creaky again, I'm like, it's just a choice. Go start doing more yeah. stretching, start doing yoga again. Do you do yoga at all? I do. Yeah. Actually, Gabriella, my spouse, she's a yoga instructor. Okay. So I'll jump in with her sometimes when she's going through her flow and just try to follow as best as I can. Yeah. Yeah. But isn't that, isn't that crazy how your body can store trauma uh, physical trauma you know like like that first step like you're anticipating it to be something but then it wasn't when i first ran that 100 miler in arizona i told you that i didn't finish Mm -hmm. um what what happened the reason i didn't finish is because my body um just physically stopped working so Mm -hmm. at mile 65 um i collapsed at about 2 a.m or so and um i sat on a rock 
and tried to get my systems back on board was fighting the the idea of just like laying there and dying, <laughs> mm-hmm. but figured out how to get back on my feet. And then I, I ended up running another six miles. And so I finally tapped out at mile 71. And I remember at mile 71, all of those emotions coming in, like, I can't believe I didn't finish this and that. I told you that um, the second time I ran it at mile 85, I hadn't felt anything, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I remember, and I took a photo of this on my phone, when I, when I was looking up and down at my watch, I realized that I was at mile 71 this past time, the second time that I ran it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I kid you not, man, within five minutes, I started feeling something's not right here. That's so interesting. Your body stores trauma. And it was so interesting that like, it wasn't until I realized that I was at that same point that I quit last time that I started to feel something negative. But how interesting is it that I was able to override those thoughts with a few moments of reasoning and logic to myself. And I was able to just continue on without any, any pains uh, until mile 85. So interesting. So interesting. I'm sure you've read the book or heard of the book with body keeps the score. Uh, I've heard of it, but I've never read it. Yeah, I think it's it's along the same line. I had the same thing. I've I think I've, I bought it, but I haven't gotten into it yet. But yeah, same kind of concept. Not not just it's one thing to store trauma. It's another thing to to have the thought of oh, am I, I should be tensing up now, or I should you know what I mean? And like triggering sort of what Joe Dispenza calls what gets uh, what gets wired gets fired. So when you have that thought and you wire that, like, Oh, I should be hurting by now. And then your body's like, Oh, okay, we'll follow your lead. You, yep. you, you said, but then yeah. to have these self-awareness for you to like challenge that and push back on that. And like you said, override it. I think that's a very effective and accurate word to use in that regard. Cause you are talking about this mental operating system yeah. um, and you, and to have to override that. And that's what I love about ultra running. It's like, it's, it's like the, the ultimate performance hack because for me, like I, the way that I think, and I think a lot of people would, would, would agree with this is we can sit in a, in a seminar or we can read a book or we can hear something through a podcast and we can learn a, a piece of information and then apply it. But it's so different when you're actually involved in the thing physically and you get that same bit of information or that download because it's almost like it's applied immediately. Whereas through a podcast or a seminar, like you might remember it, you might not, you might put it into action down the road. I'm telling you, like when you're running and you're able to like override something through a thought process that was trying to weigh you down you can immediately apply that and get an immediate result. And that's why I love ultra running, man. It's, it's like a, a shortcut to transformation because what I've learned in ultra running care, has carried over into my, my day-to-day life much more than just even working out in the gym. Mm-hmm. The carryover from running, endurance running, is so much greater. How many endurance races have you run? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. So I don't, I don't necessarily do like a lot of races. Um, I just like to run really far, but I, I've done 200 miles. Um, uh, and then a, a bunch of like 50 milers and 50 K's and things like that. But honestly, like what really turns me on is just being in the mountains and running really far. That's it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. need to be a race. Yeah. Um, 
I said before, like I, I run to run. I don't, I don't run to race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the, for the transformational gifts yeah, that come with yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Running, running to me is more of a spiritual thing than it is like a, a competition thing. And so like, if, if I do do a race, um, it's just, they're very far and few in between. Mm-hmm. Like the, the Spartan race I just did a couple weeks ago or whatever. Um, that'll be the only race I do this year. Gotcha. Yeah. What do you, what do you just to sort of wrap things up here? What are you most excited about that you're working on right now? Um, there's, there's two things and they're both running related actually. So, um, the first thing that's happening is something called project 14. And I've told you a little bit about Glacier Park and, and the years I've spent running in it. But I feel like I've done so much just running in Glacier Park that I haven't really, um, I want to do something a little bit different. So Project 14 is, the mission statement of it is to raise money for underprivileged kids to get access to national parks and places Mm. while challenging myself to set 14 speed records um, over the most strenuous and longest terrain inside of Glacier Park. That's a mouthful, but what I'm trying to do is set what are called FKTs. FKT is an acronym for fastest known time. Mm. And basically it's a speed record um, from point A to point B. And so I'm going to set 14 speed records inside of Glacier National Park this summer over the course of 14 weeks with the intention of raising at least $14,000 to get kids into these national parks and places to hopefully give them a similar experience that I had. What, what organizations are you working with or how, if somebody's listening to this and would it be helpful if they connected you with people in their area that might be interested in? Yeah. So, so what's, what's interesting is there's only two, two funds in the United States that you can contribute to, to, uh, to help kids like that. And both of them told me no. So (laughs) I am still trying to figure out exactly where that money's going to go. Uh, I have a meeting with uh, the Glacier National Park Conservancy in a couple of weeks, and we're going to see if that would work. Mm-hmm. Um, but if not, perhaps I just start a fund of my own because there isn't any out there that that want to work with me. But either way, we're still going to do it. Mm. That's a yeah. beautiful intention. Yeah. What, uh, what impact do you seek to make in the world? Well, I, I think really like the big thing for me is like I, I, I really want to show people how important running can be and how important it is to put yourself in, in stressful situations physically. Mm-hmm. There's so much learning there. And it's one of those things that we just don't do enough of. Like, like everybody talk, at least in the space that I'm in, everyone talks about doing hard things and they do cold plunges and they do these kinds of things. And those are all wonderful, but they're over so quick. But what could you learn about yourself if you were to put yourself through something that took hours and maybe even days to finish. Mm-hmm. What could you learn about yourself then? And how could you take those lessons and then apply them into your daily life? Mm-hmm. How much stronger would your marriage be? How much better would your business be? How much, how much more of a leader could you be in your family? I mean, there's just so many lessons to take from it. And that's why, you know, the, the annual retreat that we do in Montana is so important to me is because I coach people for 12 weeks on mindset and thinking and how to run really far and then we bring them to montana and i break them off in the mountains and i hold space for them as they're struggling and coach them to the finish line Mm. and Mm. it's it it changes people's lives it it instantly rewires 
old thought processes, behaviors, patterns. It rewires them for the better. And the best part is we do it in nature. That is, uh, there's, it's such an important ingredient. It may, may be the ingredient, but, um, it's fascinating to have been in this space of personal development and transformation to just to see all the different vehicles people use to arrive at, 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 uh, transcendence at yeah. enlightenment. Um, and so yeah. if you're interested in running through the woods with the Rastafarian <laughs> white guy with Mexican heritage, uh, up in the woods of Montana, where would somebody go to find out uh, how to get connected with you? Well, at the at the time of this recording, it's uh, May fifteenth or sixteenth. Seventeenth, uh, I think it's it my, today? my oh, mother's geez. birthday. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. So currently, um, we're enrolling for uh, this year's annual retreat, which is August twenty fifth to the twenty eighth in Montana. We start all of the official coaching, the twelve weeks, on June first. So in the next two weeks, we'll be starting. As of today, right now, we have four more speeds available. So we take 10 people every year. Uh, we have six total, four more. So if you're interested and there's a spot available, um, you could have a conversation about it. Fantastic. This won't publish immediately, but um, uh, there might be a small window of time for somebody to get connected yeah. with you. Re- real quick, does somebody need to have uh, experience? Do you take them from total beginner or what? what yeah, are that's you the best part. To? If, if you can run two to three miles nonstop right now, you're in a perfect place to be ready by the time you get to Montana. How much does that cost? It depends. It depends. If you want to stay on the property here, you can stay in the yurt that I'm in right now. It's a 6,000. If you're just coming and you want to find your own lodging, if you want to get your own flights and all that, it's just 5,000. Okay. Dude, yeah. I might take you up on that. That sounds awesome. Come on um, Dan, thank you so much for your time today. This was awesome. Uh, I, I knew, I knew, obviously, first meeting you that you're one of a kind, and I'd love to have uh, you, you on and, and get to know you a little bit more. So, thanks for sharing some thank wisdom you, and your heart today. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It means a lot to me. Perfect. Take care. All right, much love.